Good morning, church. Just wanted to give you a little heads up on um, kind of the, what we're going to do this morning. Um, we've got four guys that are going to um, share the responsibilities of speaking this morning, um, and we're going to we're going to step through um, some things with uh, Jesus, since uh, so many people are thinking about that today. And um, so we're going to go through uh, some thoughts on resurrection, um, crucifixion, um, Jesus' ministry, and then we're going to bring it back to kind of what people are thinking of today with Jesus' birth. So I just want to give you that so you kind of know kind of where we're going, and um, we're ready to worship. Morning, church. What a blessing it is to gather for worship on Christmas Day. We're going to read from Matthew 28, first 10 verses. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you were looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying, and now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy, and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. So it's Christmas Day. Why are we discussing the resurrection? Don't we do that? around Easter, and we do, but as it's already been indicated, it's an important event, and certainly in the life of Jesus. Without the resurrection, the birth of Jesus that we're celebrating today and during this season would have been just another in the billions of human births, but the resurrection made the nativity, the birth of Jesus, unique. The resurrection affirmed the ultimate demonstration of God's grace, which was that God himself, who had become in human form at Jesus' birth, took on and paid for the sins of all humankind, including you and me. Because of the resurrection, we have hope, even assurance, of enjoying eternity in the presence of God. 
Let's look more closely at the fantastic events that were described by Matthew in in, uh, Matthew 28. It says there was a great earthquake. Other versions say a violent earthquake. Over the years, I've been in Southern California a couple times when there happened to be a fairly significant earthquake each time. It was unsettling, to say the least. But it was not a great, or they were not great or violent earthquakes, so it's hard to imagine what that might have been. More notably than the earthquake, Matthew says an angel came down, rolled aside the huge stone that had been placed to seal the tomb of Jesus and sat on it. His appearance was shocking. His face was like lightning. His clothing was as white as snow. The guards, Roman guards, who had been stationed to keep the Jews from coming to steal Christ's body, they fainted dead away from fear. And I would think that they were pretty fearsome individuals themselves, and yet their reaction was to faint. The Marys, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, described by Matthew, surely witnessed all of this. Somebody witnessed it and told Matthew because he wrote it down and we know he wasn't there. They certainly, Scripture says, they spoke with the angel. And that in and of itself must have been quite an experience. The angel said, don't be afraid. They're probably thinking, easy for you to say. The angel said, he isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said he would. And those words right there are arguably the most amazing words ever spoken, the most fantastic announcement ever made. And the angel said, come see for yourselves. And, and they did. They went in the tomb and saw Jesus was not there. Then they instructed them, now go tell the disciples what you've seen, that he is risen and will meet them in uh, Galilee. Matthew says that the Marys were under strongly conflicting emotions. On one hand, they were very frightened, but on the other, they were filled with great joy at the same time, a real conflict of emotions. Then to add to the experience, as they hurried back toward town to do what they had been instructed, they met Jesus himself. And this confirmed for them what they had just been told by the angel, that he had risen from the dead. So the first believers in the resurrection were women. What was their response when they met Jesus? When we're very glad to see someone, as often we are at this season, our reaction is usually to give them a big hug. That wasn't exactly what these women did. They ran to Jesus. They fell before him. They grasped his feet, and they worshiped him. Why did they worship him? Because they had been brought to the full realization of who Jesus was. God in human form, the Savior of all humankind, 
worthy of worship. Shouldn't that be our response to Jesus this morning, to worship him? Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Wow. If you would please stand with me as we read from Luke's account of the crucifixion. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes by casting lots. The people stood there watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said. Since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man's done nothing wrong. Then he said. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was about noon, it was a it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Maybe seated. You know, from that reading, there were many witnesses to the crucifixion who saw what happened. Most, it seems, did not praise God. They hurled insults at Jesus. And in in Matthew's account of this, there were people that shook their heads at this man hanging on a cross. But this one centurion, seeing what had happened... Praise God and said, surely this is a righteous man. Why? Given all the people that were witnesses that were there at this event, why did this one centurion, after seeing what had happened, praise God? What did he realize that caused him to praise God? 
Here's the idea or the point or what jumped out at me in, in preparing for this. Our desire, our willingness, our motivation, our sincerity, our energy, our passion to bow and to worship and to praise God is directly related to, proportional, connected to our understanding of justice or what my deeds deserve, what your deeds deserve. Author Thaddeus J. Williams wrote a book entitled Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, 12 Questions That Christians Should Ask About Social Justice. I'm just going to read just part of that to help, maybe help us all kind of connect the dots with respect to the crucifixion, justice, and worship. Today, almost everything is considered a matter of injustice. Everything, of course, except the main thing. There is talk of economic injustice, reproductive injustice, racial injustice, and even according to yesterday's headlines, facial injustice, based on a recent university policy that threatens expulsion for mean facial expressions. What no one seems to be talking about though it is at the bedrock of all other injustice, is worship, theistic justice, bowing down to something that is worth bowing down to is not a justice issue. It is the justice issue from which all other justice blooms. Humans play God and pretend to be sovereign lords over one another. Theft, oppression, exploitation, fraud, murder, in short, social justice is the first and foremost matter of misplaced worship. Idolatry, then, is the first injustice and the carcinogenic source of every other injustice. There's a reason why the first commandment, Exodus 23, is there's, you shall have no other gods before me. That's not coincidence. That's the first commandment. We see everything in its truest light when we view it in light of God's existence. That includes the way we see humanity's grim track record of injustice as well as our own underrated capacity for evil. Paul highlights God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We pretend otherwise, but a transcendent power runs the universe And deep down, we know we're not him. God is God and we are not. We aren't the creator. We're the creatures. But we suppress that most fundamental truth about the basic structure of existence. This blurs our vision of everything else. So from this account, we have examples of blurred vision. 
without my glasses, what's on this table would be blurred vision too. But we have examples of blurred vision. You notice that Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Everybody there has blurred vision of what's happening. The ruler sneered at him. People stood watching, some shaking their heads, soldiers mocking him, blurred vision. But then we have two examples of moments of clear clarity. We have the other criminal who says, don't you fear God? Or in other words, don't you realize who this is? And don't you realize who sent him? And then we have the centurion who seeing what had happened, praised God. Justice is really defined as receiving what we are due, what our deeds deserve in light of God's existence. So what's God do? God's do our worship. He is worth bowing down to in all things, not just here. But in all things, remember, we're the created. He is the creator. So why? Why is God worth bowing down to? Well, it's Jesus. Him crucified for what I deserve and what you deserve. Romans 5, 6 You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Sometimes in our blurred, distorted vision of what justice is, when we think of ungodly, we think of other people. We think of others. That's wrong. That's a false gospel. That is justice without the cross. That's justice without grace. That's justice without Jesus. Clear vision of justice. I know that when Paul in Romans says that Christ died for the ungodly, he's talking about me and you. So we have reason to worship, reason to be so thankful for the cross and for the resurrection And for this special day in which we remember the birth of the Son of God. You know, it's not lost on me that it's taking four of us to replace Josh this morning. (laughs) I really appreciate the talent that Josh and and the men like him bring every week to us, especially as I've prepared this morning. Uh, So we'll uh, we'll do our best. I'm going to talk to you about ministry and reflect on Jesus' ministry uh, through Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. I'm going to read through those and then just a, a few points before I, I hand it back over. Um, we're going to read here. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes when Jesus got out of the boat. A man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, 
but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. Sitting there dressed in his right mind, they were afraid. Those who had seen, seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told him about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And Jesus, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus didn't let him go, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. In these verses, we see an account of Jesus casting out a demon from a man from the Gerasenes who lived among the tombs. This man was possessed by a legion of demons, not just one, and was considered to be out of his mind, causing him to be ostracized and isolated from society. But when Jesus encountered him, he saw beyond the man and recognized the man's inherent worth and value and dignity. He showed him compassion and performed a miraculous healing, freeing the man from the demon's grasp and restoring him to his right mind. As you look at Jesus and the key themes around his ministry, it was all about compassion and love for people. Even those who were marginalized and considered outcasts from society. This passage truly illustrates that theme perfectly, as Jesus not only heals the man, but shows him compassion and care. And that's who our God is. And Jesus is God, and he wants to care for us. In Psalm 116.5, it says, The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. He also has the ability to bring hope and healing to those, and it's clearly shown here. The demon-possessed man was living in a state of despair and hopelessness, but Jesus brought him hope and a new life. We're reminded here that no matter how difficult our circumstances may be, Jesus is always there to bring hope and healing to our lives. Isaiah 41.10 says, Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. 
I will hold you with my victorious right hand. Hope we can all be inspired by Jesus' example to strive and strive to bring hope and healing to those around us. We also see Jesus' power and authority over even the most oppressive and destructive forces in this world through this passage. He's able to cast out the demon with just a word, demonstrating he's not only a healer, but also has authority over the spiritual realm. John 17, 2 says, For you have granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Jesus has that power and authority, and nothing on earth can overcome him. But perhaps the most striking of all is the transformation that takes place in the man who was possessed. After being set free from the demon, he is able to sit and talk with Jesus, fully clothed and in his right mind. The transformation is a powerful reminder of the transformative power of Jesus' ministry. It illustrates the heart of Jesus to bring healing, restoration, and salvation to all those who are in need. It also reminds us of the transformative power of Jesus' love and grace. No matter how lost or broken we may feel, Jesus is able to bring hope and a new life to our lives. Ezekiel 36.26 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Jesus wants us to change, to make us new, to make us his and draw attention to him through our transformation. So as we celebrate this Christmas day and reflect on Jesus' ministry, let us remember the incredible love and sacrifice of Jesus, who came to earth to save us from sin and death. Maybe we inspired by his example to show compassion, love, hope, and healing and transformation to those around us, just as he did. Merry Christmas. Before I get started, um, <clears throat> I'm glad that Ray reminded me that I'm just quarter of the man that Josh is. So, you know, you get what you pay for. <clears throat> Matthew 2, 1 through 11. After Jesus was born... In Bethlehem in Judea. During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you were by no means among the rulers, least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler 
who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So here we are, Christmas morning, the day that many Americans and many others around the world celebrate the birth of Jesus in one way or another. The birth of Jesus is a key piece of God's plan to reconcile this broken world back to the intended relationship between God and us. There are two ways that I want to talk about and think about the birth of Jesus this morning. First is the fact that the birth of Jesus is part of the Christmas story that people of all spiritual levels acknowledge during this time of the year. No other time during the year do people of all walks of life pay as much attention to Jesus. We were, um, me and Lina and Carrie were at Epcot this last week. And as we walked around the park, we heard, God rest ye merry gentlemen. A song that says, remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. And the first Noel with words, born is the king of Israel. Think of all the places that you hear these words during this time of year. Many times we ask God to open doors for us to talk to someone we care about or show us ways that we can introduce Jesus to them. And this time of year, our neighbors, co-workers, our friends, those around us will acknowledge the story of baby Jesus and the story of a manger. All of us are in different places in our walk with Jesus. Some of us may be holding on to the promise that the resurrection has, the realization that nothing else matters because Jesus paid a debt that ensures that this world and the trials in it are temporary. And our eternal destiny is already determined because of the sacrifice and the resurrection. Those things that Steve talked to us. Some of us may be at the foot of the cross. Trying to understand why Jesus 
would do what he did for a person like me. I don't understand it, but I sure am thankful he would die on a cross for me. There are some that are thankful that Jesus would have compassion for a man that was possessed by demons and outcast by everyone. If he could do that for a man like that, maybe he'd have compassion on me and can heal me of my demons. But this time of year, there are many people who just know a baby. Born under a bright star, visited by wise man to a woman named Mary and lying in a manger. The introduction to Jesus has already been made for many of the people around us. Now they just need someone like you and me to help them understand how this baby can change their life. God will use us to guide our friends and our neighbors in an understanding that the baby grew to seek the lost, then gave up his life on a cross and rose three days to be their savior. We just got to help them through that. You think about the way that God has arranged one-twelfth of our calendar. And some people want to make it more than one-twelfth of our calendar to focus on Christmas and the birth of Jesus. He's given us quite a door into our neighbors and and our family and friends. We need to use this time to introduce others to the risen Savior. The other thing that I want us to notice is how people respond. And some of the guys mentioned this. When people come in contact with Jesus. In each of those four passages... There was an acknowledgement of Jesus. There was either worship or the desire to tell others. Over the last couple of years, I have been intrigued, um, some might say obsessed, by what it means to worship. When Mary Magdalene and the other Mary saw Jesus after the resurrection, they fell at his feet and worshipped. And what, uh, what was read a few minutes ago is they, he clasped, they clasped his feet. When the Magi saw the baby Jesus, they fell down and worshipped him. The word worship appears 254 times in Scripture, according to Bible Gateway. 136 times the reference is about worship to God in some way. And 118 of those is a reference to not worship something else. As I have been looking at this over the last few years, I was, my attention was drawn more to the references of what to do 
and less of what not to do. But as I look at worship and look at it in light of the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see that there is a posture to worship. 39 times where worship is used in the Bible, it's, it specifically says that they either fall down, they kneel down, or they bow down. When you look at the references and you start to see that worship has a physical posture, but it also has an inward posture. The physical and inward posture is one of submission to God's will. And I believe this is why scripture says not to worship other gods. In other words, do not submit to anything other than the true almighty God. We have made so much out of Sunday morning being our worship or our worship service, but scripture really doesn't frame it that way. That is not to say that Sunday morning worship is not important and worship together is not important. I think it is. But Sunday is is only part of it. Sunday is a family reunion where we come together to be with those we love and to praise a God who loves us. But worship happens every day when I submit my will to his will. When I fall face down at his at his feet and I put away my will, my wants and my desires. We worship when we proclaim God as the creator of this world and Jesus as the living Savior and submit to God's will. I'm pretty convinced that what God really wants from us is for us to trust all that he has said is true and then to live every day like our life depends on him. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I hope that we will take opportunities to help those around us to understand who the baby Jesus is and bring them to a better understanding of Jesus, our Savior. And then recognize that worship will occur whenever we recognize that Jesus is near and working in our lives. You just won't be able to keep from it. As we close 2022, I'm going to ask you to join me in following the examples 
that we read about and kneel before our God and our Savior Jesus in submission to them. I'm... um, You know, as you read through, give me just a second to get this out of the way. As we read through those passages and we read through kind of, um, and you, you kind of look at worship in, um, in Scripture, one of the things that I really did want to, to make you um, to, to just to kind of present to you is that posture matters. Um, that outward posture, that inward posture of who God is. And I'm going to ask you to do something, and, and I'm, I'm going to tell you that if you want to participate, that's great. And if not, that is also great. This is up to you. But as we close out, I'm going to... Um, we're just going to submit before God and, and kneel and pray to him. And if you feel comfortable and can, that's great. If not, that's fine. There's a couple of places in Scripture where um, Jacob worshipped and he changed his posture and, and, and leaned on his, on his staff. So if you have a staff, then by all means, lean on it. Um, but if you, if you feel comfortable and can, if you can't, that's fine. I'm going to kneel, and we're going to pray. And we're going to do something that we don't normally do in my, I mean, in my life, is really submit to God and just tell him who he is. And, um, and all I would ask that if you, if you don't feel comfortable, just change something about the way that you, that you present yourself in this prayer. Um, but that's where we're going. So, <clears throat> Father God, we start our prayer by saying what Scripture says will be proclaimed by all creatures, heaven and earth. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and glory and power forever and ever. And Father, as we we worship you and we submit to you, Father, Father, I just pray that we will do that now and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Father, you are our creator. You are everything and father we depend on you father we know that that is true and we know that the promises that you have called that you've told us are true and father we just submit to you father and in doing that father we just we just tell you father that I think like David said a little while ago, Father, you are you and we're not. And Father, that's what we want to tell you, Father, is that we understand who you are. 
and we understand who we're not. And, Father, we just depend upon you to sustain us, to comfort us, to give us peace every day. And, Father, um, be with us as we proclaim your Son um, from, from baby to resurrection, Father, and help those around us to understand who that is and to understand that they need him too. And it's in your son's name we pray, Father. Amen.